0: Journeys to the Underworld to see the dead have been popular all throughout the history of literary writing. Famous descent narratives include such varying texts as Dante's Inferno, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, Volussoyinka's Season of Anime, Margaret Atwood's The Penelope Yard, and Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea. The Underworld has been one of the fundamental myths to preoccupy us as humans, and has taken as varied a shape as our manifold imagination is capable of. Today, I will focus on a particular feature of the underworld, namely its spatiality. Whenever we conceptualize an underworld, at least in the Western tradition, it is a place that we visit and more often than not, a space which we descend into. The ancient Greeks named the journey to the underworld a katabasis, whereby they used the verb katabanēn, which is a compound word made out of kata, down, and banēn, to go. The underworld is thus literally a space into which we descend. To illustrate the preoccupation for space and time which the underworld invites, I will first give a brief overview of the history of the descent narrative from classical antiquity into modernity. I will also speak of the ways in which I believe considerations of time, and therein especially the past, are both bound up and deconstructed within the descent narrative. Finally, to illustrate this dynamic, I will discuss a poem from the 20th century which adapts the underworld as a space of failed commemoration. Katabasis' The Journey to the Underworld tells of a long-awaited encounter with the dead, whose knowledge and wisdom compel the protagonists to brave the journey deep into the earth. The journey allows for the hero to recover long-lost memories, to gain knowledge of the future and to be metaphorically reborn. In Virgil's Aeneid, for instance, the descent to the underworld allows Aeneas to reconnect with his father, to overcome his past failures, and turns him from a Trojan War refugee into the military leader who can become the future founder of Rome. Likewise, the Odyssey describes a journey to the underworld, although the hero himself does not actually descend into its depths. Rather, the Odyssey describes a which is rather similar to our modern term necromancy, um, wherein the Nicaea describes the summoning of the dead to the overworld, although in the Odyssey it takes place in close proximity to the underworld. Also the Odyssey um, describes an underworld episode that is closely centered around the past. It allows Odysseus to reconnect with his mother Anticleia, confronts him with his dead war comrades, and Tiresias' wisdom illuminates the hero's journey back to his homeland, Ithaca. In fact, the narrative template of the descent journey was prevalent enough throughout antiquity that even in Plato's Republic we find references to through the use of the terminology of katabasis. Early on, Plato uses the verb kataben, meaning to descent, whereby he parallels the philosopher's journey down into the cave in his famous cave allegory with the hero's journey into Hades. The underworld inspectors did not only play a significant role in the imagination of epic poets and philosophers though, but it also shaped the thinking of ordinary citizens in the ancient world. Sarah L. Johnson has described how imagined encounters between the living and the dead were commonplace in the literature, mythology and sociocultural rituals across ancient Greece. At times thereby the dead were portrayed as helpful voices that could be summoned to refresh someone's memory or to grant a piece of information. Als Johnson recounts, for instance, the story of Peleander and the ghost of his wife Melissa. Peleander had misplaced an object in his possession. It's not transmitted to us what exactly that object was, but he decides to summon the ghost of his wife Melissa, who after her own wishes had been granted, reveals the location of the object to him, which is just this wonderfully banal story to involve the summoning of a specter rather than, you know, looking for it himself. He just, decides to go through this entire ritualistic invocation. But Iles Johnson actually calls the story a textbook example of how relations between the living and the dead were supposed to work. However, the dead were not always as helpful as dear dead Melissa. Commonly they were described as downright dangerous and during crises, for instance, cities in the ancient world would often conclude that they were haunted by the dead. Cities thus celebrated civic days of the dead and festivals such as the Athenian Anthesteria, which involved rituals to avert specters from the houses of the city's inhabitants and to appease the departed. Through all these interactions with the departed, the dead were, as Susanna Turner phrases it, put on show to what often seems a surprisingly wide viewership. Monuments and cemetery spaces all carve out a visible and hopefully enduring space for the dead in the world of the living. And all of this created a fertile atmosphere for the ancients to see the underworld and its spectres as part of their everyday lives, and to reimagine the histories which the deceased had been a part of. But Journeys to the Underworld haven't only been popular in antiquity, of course, but it remains a famous trope all throughout the history of literary writing. Its seeming universality in being adapted has led to scholars such as Joseph Campbell to call it a universal adventure, Rosalind Williams calling it an enduring archetype, while Rachel Falconer has actually named the journey to the underworld an even more important trope than the notion of hell itself. Although many later rewritings of Katabasis adapt or otherwise draw on the famous myths surrounding Odysseus, Aeneas or Orpheus, the descent has long become closer to a literary genre than a series of straightforward adaptations. Many descent narratives, for instance, engage with the ancient sources of Katabasis as well as its later adaptations. For instance, in J.M. Coetzee's novel Age of Iron, the protagonist Mrs. Curran's metaphorical descent into the South African townships is more closely inspired by Dante's Inferno than Virgil's Aeneid or Homer's Iliad. And Derek Walcott's choice to locate the underworld in an underground train station is certainly influenced as much by Homer's Odyssey as by Seamus Heaney's poem, The Underground, wherein Heaney did the same thing just a few years prior. So the catabasis genre is not one that has remained fixed and unchanged by historical time and context. Especially since the 19th century, the excavation of deep spaces within the earth has in the words of Rosalind Williams, and I quote, served as a dominant metaphor for truth-seeking, end quote. The ancient quest into the depths to acquire knowledge and wisdom often became a narrative framework for excavations of the earth in modern times. The scientific discoveries and technological advancements that were made alongside these excavations thereby became the modern counterpart for ancient enlightenment. Without losing its sacred and mythical quality, developments in archaeology, anthropology and even psychology have shaped the underworld into an imagined space located much closer to modern realities than to the fantastical time of ancient spirits and their prophecies. Most significantly, perhaps, in the 20th century, theories such as Freud's and Lacan's changed the connotation of the underworld from an exterior space that is visited on a singular occasion to one which returns to the surface of our own subconscious. So, the 19th century most prominently started to unearth the truth seeking component of the descent narrative, but in a way, the descent has always centered around the unconcealment of information and the obtainment of wisdom. A crucial component of this journey towards revelation and transformation is the inherent orientation of the descent not only downwards, physically speaking, but also backwards into the past. In her nonfiction monograph on writing, Negotiating with the Dead, Canadian uh, writer Margaret Atwood frames all forms of narration as a desire, and I quote, to make the risky trip to the underworld and to bring something or someone back from the dead. She writes that, all writers must go from now to once upon a time, all must go from here to there, all must descend to where the stories are kept, all must take care not to be captured and held immobile by the past, End quote. Therein she draws our attention to the temporal distortion that is fundamental to the descent to the underworld. As we go from now to once upon a time, the present is interwoven with the haunting return of a past that threatens to freeze time altogether. To return to the overarching theme of this series, time and space, the underworld is a space that inherently and implicitly distorts the nature of time for all those who descend into it. This distortion of time has been a great inspiration to both modern and postmodern writers. Authors like Caribbean writer Wilson Harris have constructed entire underworld landscapes populated by a number of historical figures from altogether different times and places. Thus, in Harris's novels, it's not altogether uncommon to have figures like Montezuma, Odysseus, Buddha, and Christopher Columbus interact with one another in the same space. But this distortion of time is not an altogether modern invention either. It is certainly no coincidence that Odysseus's journey to the underworld takes place in a seemingly timeless zone, in a magical and mythical space near the end of the earth, in the midst of his wanderings. And these wanderings across the ocean, In fact take him closer to his past than to his future, as he is forced to re-encounter his uh, his war comrades, both dead and alive, and his journey's end is also its beginning, his homeland in Ithaca. Since antiquity, the heroes of Katabasa's narratives have had to brave the journey to the underworld in order to confront the past, to learn from it or to despair at its irrecoverable nature. We must only remember the sorrow of Odysseus at being unable to embrace the spectre of his mother Anticlea, or Orpheus' loss of his wife's spirit near the exit of Hades, to know that this confrontation with the past is not an easy or necessarily a successful one. Within a quest that is fundamentally oriented towards the past, memory becomes an important, if not the central theme. Katabasa's narratives are more often than not dominated by the memories of the dead. Although it is the oracular knowledge of the sage Tiresias and Anchises that drives Odysseus and Aeneas to seek out the underworld, the largest part of their descent are actually made up of fleeting encounters with their loved ones, friends, comrades and even enemies. These encounters force the heroes to remember and accept the misfortunes that have driven them to this lowest part of their journey, to Hades. The future that awaits them, it seems, can only be realized after they have confronted their past. So Odysseus is forced to face Ajax, whose death he inadvertently caused, while Aeneas is reminded of his former lover Dido when he passes by her shade in the underworld. Both the ghosts of Ajax and Dido refuse to speak to the protagonist, their silence emblematic of the divide and enmity which the heroes' past deceitful actions have caused. While Odysseus tricked Ajax out of his spoils of war, Aeneas left the Queen of Carthage after she believed them to be tied by the bonds of marriage. And apart from these poignant reminders of the heroes' often less than noble past, Catabasis also invokes familial and personal recollections through the heroes' fleeting encounters with dead family members, Anticleia and Anchises respectively, recollections which are shaped by bittersweet and nostalgic regret for a home which the heroes have long lost as they are confronted with aspects of their past they had forgotten, or perhaps which they might wish to forget. The dis- protagonists are also, perhaps inadvertently, remind the o- audience or readers of the existence of the dead. Thereby, Catabasis assumes the narrative function of a kind of memorial, something that is particularly significant, of course, in the largely oral society of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Odysseus' helmsman Elpenor bids the hero, Nesta amayo, remember me. Therein, he rather directly asks for the hero himself and the poem's audience to keep him in their memory. Plus, within the epic, this tale is actually being recounted by Odysseus to the Phaeacian court, allowing Elpenor's memory to travel through the hero's own narration within the epic. So there's layers and layers of metatextuality here. This connection between spirits and their wish to be remembered continues to be explored throughout Greco-Roman antiquity. In Euripides' tragedy Hecuba, for instance, the ghost of Polydorus serves both as a reminder to the living of the atrocities that were committed by the Greeks, and the ghost also strives to be remembered but himself, retained within his mother's and the audience's memory. The yearning for memory and the threat of forgetfulness are also essential design elements in Plato's own version of the underworld in his myth of air in the Republic. And finally we see this ghostly wish for remembrance recur in Virgil's Aeneid. Virgil was very much influenced by both the Iliad and the Odyssey in the conception of his own epic so it's not also rather surprising that we find kind of fundamental design elements from the Odyssey and the Iliad recur in Virgil's epic and indeed uh, Aeneas 6 very much follows the kind of underworld episode of Odyssey 11 And there is even a corresponding figure to Elpenor, the sailor Palinurus, who died during Aeneas' journey to Italy. Palinurus is promised by the Sibu, who functions as Aeneas' guide through the underworld, that, and I quote, neighboring folk in cities up and down the coast will be induced by portents to appease your bones, building a tomb and making offerings there on a cape forever named for Palinurus. Receiving a proper burial, which this essentially amounts to, equals kind of receiving this uh, physical memorial for the accomplishments of one's life. And this played a hugely significant role in the ancient world. We can see this, for instance, in the importance that is placed on the burial of both Hector and Patroclus in the Iliad, whereby Achilles' refusal to return the body of Hector to the Trojans for a proper burial forms much of the central conflict of the later part of the epic. And this again speaks to the large cultural importance burial plate, not only within Homer's own epic, but also the society the epic was composed within. So since antiquity, the underworld has functioned as both a literal and a metaphorical space in which the memories of the dead could be preserved, and the hero's catabasis into its depths guaranteed the transmission of their stories over generations. Memory retrieved through a catabasis assumes an important role both within the text and within the larger sphere of cultural communication, as the audience remembers the tales of the deceased and turns their spectres into the markers of canonical narratives. A part of Katabasis that also really speaks to this cultural preoccupation with remembering the dead are the catalogues of the dead, which we uh, find as a staple in most uh, famous Katabasis narratives, both in antiquity and beyond, but especially in epics. These catalogues uh, serve as commemoratives of some of the most famous departed heroes of a recent or even mythological history and while at times these kind of catalogs are even unrelated to the larger story the epic is telling these episodes speak to epic's encyclopedic function as a kind of recounter of cultural memory So as a narrative device, The Descent is rather literally about the hero's journey of remembering. But this kind of narrative also invokes a more metatextual question about how we commemorate the past, how we adapt what has come before within the present imagination and what role cultural memory plays in all of this. While the catabatic journey often begins with the hero's desire to recover what had previously been forgotten, the journey into the past frequently turns into a more self-conscious exploration of what remembering is and what it could achieve. The importance of memory as a thematic in popular catabasis myths is thus very likely to be inspired by a conceptual interest many writers have taken into the workings of memory itself. In antiquity, Nemosine, in the ancient Greek goddess of memory and wisdom, was known as the mother of the nine muses and the founder of both the arts and the sciences. This central role of memory in the mythological realm reflected its foundational place within ancient Greek philosophical and academic discourses. Plato, the supposed devotee of the goddess of memory and his student Aristotle, wrote some of the most famous philosophical treatises on the nature and mechanisms of remembering in this cultural environment. As Janet Coleman has argued, at the heart of both philosophers' epistemologies lie questions concerning both memory and forgetfulness. Thereby Plato's dialogues Meno and Theatetos, for instance, preoccupy themselves with processes of remembrance, whereby Meno sets out a the theory of knowledge as a form of recollection, and Theatetos introduces the famous allegory of memory as an imprint on a mental wax tablet. It is not perhaps surprising that in a culture that was so engrossed with the haunting return of the dead, memory grew to be such a significant preoccupation. Or perhaps it is of little surprise that in a largely oral society, in which memory was one of the main ways to retain information, the haunting return of the past vis-à-vis an underworld and its specters became such a popular trope. Although the goddess Nemosyne held a less prominent position in ancient Rome than she did in Greece, the conceptual importance of memory by no means declined in Roman times. The ghosts of the past still haunted Rome and its people, with curses and revelatory artefacts as well as spirit-repelling amulets, serving as signs of a nigh on omnipresent faith in and fear of the influence of the dead. In an environment shaped by such beliefs and by memories of an ever-increasing legacy of former emperors, the Romans made some of the most significant advances in the arts of mnemonics. Mnemonics are a kind of memorialization technique that was used chiefly in the Roman system of rhetoric and depended on re- uh, remembering specific places and images. Perhaps the most famous story describing how these mnemonics work is recounted by Cicero in his De Oratore, wherein he tells the story of Simonides of Seos. At a banquet, Simonides is the only survivor after the roof has collapsed on top of the other guests, and he has to rely on his memory to remember where each of the guests had seated. He is able to do this by remembering the room's layout, the locus in Latin, of which he had formed a mental image and upon trying to recall the placement of each of the banquet's participants, remembering this locus helps him to remember where each of the guests had been seated. This emphasis on visuals and places in the Romans' preoccupation with memory is even reflected within the city's architecture itself, as has been discussed by David Lama and Diana Spencer. They describe how... Quote, walking around the public places of central Rome brought the spectator into confrontation with the past at almost every turn, end quote. Greco-Roman Hades is a fundamentally physical space, a location that was sought out by mortal heroes and whose entrance could be crossed by the souls of the dead and mortals alike, well, as long as the mortals brought the necessary sacrifice. And indeed, in both ancient Greece and Rome, there existed physical locations that were conceptualised as a kind of underworld, some of the most famous ones being Heraclea Pontica, Ternaron and Cume. The underworld was thus not only a space that existed in people's imagination, but was a locus memoriae, a place of memory that could be visited in reality, and this kind of conception of real-world places as locus memoriae very much comes out of this cultural preoccupation with memory that exists in relation to space. In his famous monograph, The Production of Space, Henri Lefebvre uses the example of the classical underworld to explain the creation of what he terms, quote-unquote, representational spaces. These spaces, quote, embodied complex symbolism, sometimes coded, sometimes not, that were linked to the clandestine or underground side of social life and also to art, end quote. Spaces which take on this kind of capacity as signifiers become, in Lefebvre's words, quote, the dominated and hence passively experienced space which the imagination seeks to change and appropriate, end quote. He uses as an example a mundos, a pit or publish rubbish dump in the middle of the ancient Roman cities, which is turned into an underworld-like space in the minds of the citizens. This allowed the Romans to incorporate what Lefebvre terms the abyss into their everyday lives in a graspable manner. Lefebvre notes how representational spaces thereby effectively speak to their inhabitants and visitors, serving as fluid and dynamic areas of signification. Perhaps after the so, uh, particularly after the so-called spatial turn in academic research, memory scholars have likewise discussed how different social concerns and ideas are often bound up with certain spaces through the workings of cultural memory and imagination. Throughout its long reception history, the underworld has remained a metaphorically potent deathscape that just waits for our imagination to fill in the blanks within an implicitly recognizable mold. Its common narrative as well as physical structure of inviting a descent into the depths also invites us to think of a descent into the past and to assign to this structure a significance within our contemporary age. Therein, the underworld most commonly assumes one of two significances. Either it becomes a deathscape that facilitates a kind of healthy transition between past and present as part of the hero's quest, or most commonly in its reception in the 20th century and beyond, it becomes a memorial space whose failure to stir up authentic memories causes the re-traumatization of the hero, who therein often becomes emblematic for a single or community of mourners. But the underworld has kept its quote unquote original physical shape in many of these adaptations, whereby references to its classical origins are interwoven with descriptions of the adaptation culture's own landscapes. Commonly, then, a local river becomes the Styx, and a local cave becomes the entrance to Hades, and we may even find the ancient river of forgetfulness, Lethe, within the Moyola River in Ireland, at least if we're Seamus Heaney. Again, however, the underworld's shape has not remained altogether unchangeable. As Rachel Falconer has described, its memorable physicality can nowadays be invoked by a reference to Dante's dark wood in addition to references to rivers and caves. Thanks to these transcultural associations, local environments assume a greater mnemonic significance that they perhaps held before, becoming physical memory spheres that invoke both local stories and transcultural myths. Speaking as a memory scholar who studies the reception of tropes across different cultures and time periods, the physicality of the underworld is therein what we may call a prefigurative factor for its mnemonic reception. Therein, both physical and thematic characteristics of Hades recur in a comparable yet schematic manner across both a transcultural and a transtemporal axis. As one of the earliest memory scapes, the Underworld provides a uniquely stimulating and self-reflexive framework for an analysis of the connection between time and memory, and therein between space and time. Ideas surrounding physical embodiments of memory lead back to such early tales as the imprint on a mental wax tablet. And to quote classical philologist and memory scholar Jan Assmann, Memory figures need to be given substance through a particular setting and to be realized in a particular time. But in modern scholarship, this link between material objects and spaces and processes of remembering has most famously been conceptualized within Pierre Nora's famous scholarly collection on Lieu de Memoire. Norat's seven volumes of Lieu de Memoire were written during the height of scholarly interest in memory in both France and Europe in the, from the 1970s onwards. In his work, Nora describes his so-called lieu de mémoire as both physical sites, objects, as well as imagined sites of memory, such as uh, Marcel Proust's celebrated Petit Madeleine. He thereby strives to analyze their significance in both a material, symbolic, and functional sense. And Nora's research led him to argue that a mixture of globalization, democratization and the rapidly increasing use and popularity of new media have actually contributed to the demise of what he calls memory-based societies and ultimately to that of memory itself. And a very popular quote from Nora is that we speak so much of memory because there is so little of it left. Nora therein contrasts so-called milieu de mémoire to his lieu de mémoire, social environments, milieu of memory, which are continuously disappearing with the rise of globalization and technological advancements. As a way to compensate for these disappearing local contexts and memory spheres, Nora argues sites, such as memorials or landmarks in the land or cityscapes, are invested with mnemonic significance for their respective communities, aimed at retaining feelings of continuity with the past. We may be tempted to compare this way of imbuing space with significance with Lefebvre's writing on the underworld spaces in ancient Rome. However, Nora does not see this process as passively experienced and natural, but as artificially constructed through the act of designating certain spaces as memorials. Kathleen Brogan has likewise argued that lieu de mémoire, and I quote, originate not as spontaneous memories, but as deliberate, consciously willed attempts in a deritualized world to commemorate the past, end quote. They are divorced from the living tradition that Nora saw as part of social or collective memory cultures which were alive in the ancient world. But if spaces of memory are no longer organic, what does that say about the memories of the past we may encounter as we enter the underworld, which is perhaps the original lieu de mémoire? If what remains at the bottom of Hades is a mere echo of an authentic history, why should we keep attempting the descent? Nora's pessimism about the ability of memorial sites to produce authentic memories stands in contrast to the necessary physicality of lieu de mémoire. These sites do provide a physical framework within which the past can, at least metaphorically speaking, be visited, and there are few things that appear more stable than an actual site that can be visited. Judith Wassermann, for instance, has also spoken of sites or even the landscape as, quote, a mnemonic device for remembering and preserving historic experiences and a place for new traditions to emerge." End quote. So in her analysis of memorials, she stresses how an emphasis on physicality helps to keep quote, a memory alive by rooting it in physical presence. End quote. And Umberto Eco has likewise noted that, quote, remembering is like constructing and then traveling again through space. We are already talking about architecture. Memories are built as a city is built." The underworld's physical presence invokes memories not only of ancient Greek and Roman mythospheres, but it serves as a physical space that can be envisioned and at least imaginatively visited for the purposes of commemoration. As within its mythological framework, space and time become increasingly intertwined, an underworldly memorial space can then so forcefully incite its viewers to reimagine and reevaluate the past as if they themselves had undergone a catabasis. But the physicality of memorial spaces does not necessarily guarantee the reliability of the memories they invoke. Mike Krang and Penny Travlu have argued that, quote, places do not offer unification or stability. Instead, they are a point of fracturing. Places of memory stand instead simultaneously in a past order and the present, and are thus doubly located through at least two different sets of coordinates. In doing this, they offer cracks in the surface of the present where time can be otherwise. End quote. It is these opportunities for creating fractures in present histories, beliefs, or representations that make underworldly landscapes so interesting to adapt, particularly in the present moment. (coughs) While assuming the shape of a real-world site that summons up the ghosts of the past, in modern literature the underworld often becomes an out-of-time retreat that provides a new perspective on both the past and on the contemporary moment. This new perspective on history is shaped more by loss in comprehension and fragmentation than the stable connections to the past that was mourned by scholars such as Nora. One only needs to have one look at T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, which roughly follows the shape of a catabasis, to see the fundamental fragmentation that has shaped the modern and postmodern imagination of the so-called wisdom tradition. Through the scepticism of old master narratives about the past and its cohesiveness, the underworld has also assumed the potential to p- become a resonant imaginative site for the deconstruction of dominant histories and canons. Thereby the hero's catabatic quest is able to unearth previously unheard of and divergent narratives that opens up new possibilities for the future. Many post-colonial authors have used the Katabasis trope to this effect, from Derek Walcott's long poem Omeros, Wilson Harris's Palace of the Peacock, to Seamus Heaney's Riverbank Field. To explore this modern dynamic of Katabasis more thoroughly, I will now discuss a poem by Michael Longley, a 20th and 21st century Northern Irish, Irish poet. Longley's poetry features a kind of fundamental pessimism about our ability to connect with the past that separates his work from many 20th century and post-colonial Katabasis narratives. One of the most resonant subjects in Longley's poetry is this question of how we remember the past, a question which he ponders as he remembers antiquity. As Longley reworks his own memories of the Greco-Roman mythological tradition, he simultaneously foregrounds questions of how remembrance is possible and appropriate in the first place. When Longley's adaptation of classical themes is explicitly bound up in Irish political contexts, it usually pertains to questions such as how best memorialize the fallen of the troubles. Longley's position as a Northern Irish poet is important in this context, as his political surroundings incite him to address questions of memorialisation that are so pertinent in the North to this day. One of the more common tropes Longley adapts from Greco-Roman antiquity is of course the Catabasis narrative, which is why I'm talking about him today. And we find many literary spaces across his poetry that take on underworldly resonances. Longley commonly locates the classical underworld within an imaginative landscape that is clearly demarcated as Irish as well. Therein, when he adapts the Katawasis narrative, he refigures a specific real-world location into an underworld-like space, which, in the shape of a modern lieu de mémoire, serves as a framework for a renewed but complicated engagement not only with a local but a transcultural past. In Longley's poetry, the descent into the past is always difficult and complex. At the time of his writing, the issue of memorialization became increasingly politically sensitive in his home country of Northern Ireland. During and after the Irish Troubles, attempts to memorialise the fallen of the conflict gave heat to heated debates over who should be mem- uh, commemorated, where and how. Noala Johnson has uh, described how, and I quote, while national politicians, local councillors and members of the churches could all agree that some public marking of remembrance to the fallen was desirable, the use of public space for such activity was consistently contested." End quote. John Turpin provides perhaps the most obvious example for this as he relates how, in Northern Ireland, proposals to create memoriali- memorials to the independence movement often proved so problematic that almost next to none of them were actually constructed, as they would have been perceived as a challenge to the Unionist regime. It was during this time that geography was noted to take on a crucial role within the politics of remembrance, and those planning memorials, marches or other public forms of commemoration became increasingly wary of its role and reception. In this assessment of Longley's poetic memorial spaces, I read his adaptation of the underworld and of catabasis with reference to these discourses around memorials in modern Ireland. I suggest that Longley infuses classical imagery into Irish environments to both invoke the timely discourse around commemoration in Northern Ireland and to detach himself from possible controversies around memorializing either side of the conflict preferring to present a more general stance on ways of resurrecting the past. As Longley adapts the classical underworld throughout his poetry, he often engages with the idea of speechlessness. Headstone is one of the poems in which Longley frames an encounter with the dead as one in which it is silence that concludes the traditional hero's quest into the underworld. In this poem, Longley narratively constructs what we may call a traditional lio de mémoire. Namely, Longley's poem centers on a tombstone for his poetic persona's parents, which serves as a designated space at which the poem's narrator wishes to re-encounter their spirits. So Longley locates his parents' tombstone in a typically Irish landscape. Longley's detailed descriptions of different places in the landscape is clearly colored by an element of nostalgia for the places that the poetic eye wanted to ask his father about. Textual memories of the locations Longley's poetic eye is intimately familiar with are thereby intersected also with references to Greco-Roman mythology, a mixture of kind of local and transcultural reference through which the poem frames and navigates the traumatic nature of his parents' death. In theme, Headstone echoes one of Longley's most famous poems on a catabatic reunion with a loved one, Anticlea. Anticlea is is Odysseus's mother, who he futilely tries to embrace in the Underworld episode of Odyssey 11. Longley's Anticlea centers entirely around an indirect question from son to mother, which remains unanswered by the time the poem closes. Likewise, in Headstone, Longley's poetic persona begins the second stanza with the wish of asking a question, quote, I wanted to ask him, his father, about the lockkeeper's house and about the towpath, end quote. But like in Auntie Claire, Longley's poetic persona never receives the reunion with his parents he longs for, as the question remains not only unanswered, uh, but unasked, as the ghosts of his parents never appear within the texts. Headstone precludes any conversation between the living and the dead, becoming a memorial to loss and failed communication at the end of the poetic persona's attempt to summon the dead. The relationship between the living and the dead is one of intended remembrance, yet illegibility. The ship of death sails up the Acheron, that is the another word for the Styx, the river of the underworld. But instead of facilitating the anticipated reunion between parent and child, the ship's cargo is, quote, sand and sandy water, end quote. As readers, we are familiar with this two-sided form of commemoration from classical catabasis narratives in the Odyssey or the Aeneid, in which the hero is able to ask the deceased one last question, and in which the ghosts themselves are able to ask the living to remember them. But this kind of interaction is impossible now, and the deceased are permanently alienated and lost from the world of the bereaved. Longley's use of a headstone as a symbol for this separation from the past, remember the poem itself is called headstone, is very interesting as the motif of the firmly constructed stone monument deliberately contrasts this fleeting relationship with the past that is captured within the poem. As we've seen in the previous discussion of Lieu de Memoire, such a contrast draws attention to the false economy of assuming that memorials hold a stable meaning and can provide a fixed gateway to the past. And indeed, in researching Irish monuments and tombstones over the last centuries, critics have found that they are a biased and elite source of information in the past, since they only mirror how the deceased wanted to be perceived, while certain parts of the population, such as the poor, are always passed over in such representations. Claude Achtet reminds us that particularly, and I quote, Funeral monuments should therefore not be regarded as decorative devices or plundered for factual information. Neither should they be considered as fixed or immutable signs, since their context and often their meaning attributed to them may have changed in the period that separates us from their creation." In Longley's poem, the past is permanently lost even to the hero willing to brave the perilous descent into the underworld, whereby the memorial potential of the tombstone stands in stark contrast to the poem's inability to establish a true connection to the dead. As Longley defamiliarizes the local memorial landscape by means of a transcultural reference to Greco-Roman myth, The poem's tombstone ceases to be symbolically tied to only the political structures of memorialization in Northern Ireland. Instead it becomes emblematic of a wider conversation about remembering and reconnecting with the past. Considering the controversies relating to memorials in Northern Ireland, Longley's references to classical antiquity and its descent journeys allows him to circumvent implicitly making a statement around the politics of remembrance specific to Ireland. The poetic persona instead tries to find comfort in a seemingly universal story of loss that he remembers as he is trying to find a connection to his own past. But while Longley's sociocultural environment is never explicitly referenced in Headstone, it is of course a background influence on his uh, thematic preoccupations. Within the poem, Longley seems to generalise his personal despair over a lost connection with his parents into a generational issue about the impossibility of relating to or successfully recalling the past. What's important is that it's not the protagonist himself who fails at his catabasis due to some kind of mistake he makes like Orpheus turning around just before he and Eurydice are able to leave the underworld. It is the ship of death that remains empty as it sails up the Acheron. And so the problem is fundamental, not personal. As has been discussed by many memory scholars working on Ireland, the trauma surrounding the Irish independence fighting as well as the troubles that continued throughout much of Longley's life has led to a fracture in Irish cultural memory, which has been shaped by the feelings of loss and grief. Longley's Headstone sketches up such a trauma-ridden memory culture. The memories of his family are intrusive, driving the imagination of the poetic persona towards the underworldly river. But no productive engagement with the past is possible, even at the most significant of memory escapes, at a headstone. There can be no heroic Cantabasis narrative, recalling the successful descent journeys of Greco-Roman heroes. Instead, we witness a failed attempt to engage with the past that only expresses itself through silence. The despair of the poetic persona, as well as his inability to reconnect with the dead, thus appear sim- uh, symbolic for the Irish nation at large. Haunted by the aftermath of its traumatic past, it seems unable to come to an active form of reconciliation, even or especially through as methodical and official a form of memorialization as that framed by headstones. At the same time, the references to such universal tales as the Catabasis narrative broaden the poem's significance to more global scales and open the curtain to a 20th century haunted by the traumas of war, disillusionment and increased cultural fragmentation. In her monograph on descent narratives in the 18th and 19th centuries, Rosalind Williams names the Catabasis narrative not only one of the oldest tales of humankind, but also a fundamental framework through which we as humans conceptualize the world around us. She writes, and I quote, Stories of the descent to the underworld are so ancient and universal that their fundamental structure, the opposition of surface and depth, may well be rooted in the structure of the human brain, end quote. Memories of the underworld have engrossed a global imagination since the dawn of time, but these memories found their new haunting ground in the 20th century. An almost overwhelming preoccupation has consumed the 20th century, as it is still working through ways of comprehending, processing, and overcoming the collective trauma of the Holocaust, Hiroshima, the fights against and remnants of global colonial efforts, the Cambodian killing fields, the Rwandan genocide, and the Latin American counterinsurgence campaigns. As David Pete writes in the preface to From Certainty to Uncertainty, and I quote, While the 20th century began with confident certainty, it ended in unsettling uncertainty. Never again will we have the same degree of pride in our knowledge. In our infatuation with science and technology, we overestimated our ability to manipulate and control the world around us. We forgot the power of the mind's irrational impulses. We were too proud in our intellectual achievements, too confident in our abilities, too convinced that humans would stride across the world like gods. Today we are wiser and more cautious." The 20th century, and much of the 21st century as we have experienced it, has been engrossed with a general mood of uncertainty about both the past and the future. The promise to return, to descend into the past, to change what has come before or at least to look at it one more time is part of a larger societal impulse of regret, nostalgia and a fervent wish for change. It is no wonder that 20th century authors and artists continue to return to perhaps the most famous myth about the descent not only into the underworld but into the past. But the global hellscape these authors envision is not the one we remember from classical antiquity. Inspired by the existential uncertainty and cultural displacements of modern life, the ancient climax of the descent narrative, the hero's enlightenment and subsequent transformation, is often replaced by moments of plurality, ambiguity, silence or loss. Now, this doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, as catabatic encounters are shaped by numerous opportunities rather than the deterministic prophecies of ancient epic, they are able to preserve multiple possibilities to look at the past as well as to conceive of the future. Underworld spaces are capable of inviting us to descend and change the past and they deconstruct our perception of time with the intruding force of both wanted and unwanted memories. However, as one of the most pervasive memory escapes throughout human history, the underworld's pervasive mnemonic potential more often than not stands in stark contrast with the frailty and inadequacy of our own ability to remember and to learn from the past. And on this depressing note, thank you very much for your attention.